Father, we've praised you with our voices. And uh, Lord, now as we move toward worshiping you, through being attentive to the good news of your son being proclaimed, Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and the desire and the understanding to hear the news of your son whom you have set before us as our Savior, announcing his finished work which pays for our salvation. Lord, I pray that you would make us attentive. Make me faithful to proclaim nothing but that. And Lord, would you make us faithful to hear that with faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Samuel 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. And before we read from 1 Samuel, I want to make it very clear what the purpose of this sermon is. The purpose of this sermon is that the people of God, you and I here, and that Israel as well, when they first heard this passage, that they would remove all confidence in themselves and anything else any arrogant confidence in their own strength and in their own righteousness and take that confidence and transfer it into the Messiah, into the anointed King of God. And also, that Israel and we who are hearing this now, 3,000 years later, would know for certain who God's Messiah would be. First, that we would transfer our confidence into the Messiah, away from ourselves and anything else, humble ourselves, putting our confidence in God's Messiah, and that we would know that he would be very clear who his Messiah would be so that we would know who to put our confidence in. Our first point, just to introduce the passage before we read it, is this, a son to comfort the ridiculed, and beloved woman. A son to comfort the ridiculed and beloved woman. And so over the last two months, we've looked into God's word to see how the Lord created the nation of Israel and all of its families in such a way that if they ever fell, if they were ever in need of redemption, if they were ever shamed, they were created in such a way that they themselves would not have to restore themselves but that they could be redeemed by the work of one son. If there would be a son born born who is qualified and who is also willing to do this, the nation of Israel and each of its families, if they were shamed in need of redemption, they wouldn't have to redeem themselves, that it would be through the redemption of a son if he was born qualified and willing to do this. We saw this over the last couple of months, reading through and just drinking from the book of Ruth. And so Boaz, together with his son that was born to him, Obed, they brought that kinsman, that relative, that kinsman redemption to the household of Elimelech, Naomi and Ruth. Through this son, though, we learned sort of at the beginning of Ruth and at the end, we sort of learned that the Lord would not, bring, would not only bring redemption to this small Israelite house through Boaz and redemption, but actually the entire house 
of Israel. And so today we begin to hear, together we get to hear this from God's word from 1 Samuel, to see how the Lord is going to bring comfort and joy and glory to the shame of a people who are ridiculed by the people around her. And so the flow of redemptive history, we started here before in Judges and through to Ruth and now into Samuel, that flow of that redemptive history in the book of Judges into Ruth, it tells us that this is going to come from a king through whom the Lord is going to establish a kingdom. Judges ends with that there was no king. Remember, it's this refrain through Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. And then Ruth, right after that, Ruth ends with a future genealogy that David would be born from this family. His people, his family, his household, his nation would become a kingdom which the Lord himself would, was going to adorn with honor and glory and growth and expansion. And he would do this through a kinsman redeemer. But not just any kinsman redeemer. A royal kinsman redeemer. Through this son, comfort and honor would be brought to the ridiculed and beloved woman of God, Israel, his bride. So, it is totally fitting that the events recorded in 1 Samuel and the first couple of chapters, the book which identifies this son, this royal kinsman redeemer, it's fitting that this book also begins with a ridiculed and beloved woman who's comforted by the birth of a son. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 1 together. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the, uh, the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went to the house, up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me 
and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away, sir, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord yearly the sacrifice to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as long, sorry, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. I wonder if you saw this theme come once again to the lives of the people here. The theme which shone so brightly in the book of Ruth, that the Lord comforts the woman by the birth of a son. In Ruth, it was Ruth that was the beloved woman, and she was beloved by Boaz, wasn't she? This beloved woman was comforted by the birth of Obed, the redeemer of her family. And so too was Naomi comforted by the birth of Obed. His grandmother was comforted by the birth of Obed. And as Ruth came to a close, this family was blessed by the people of the town. A blessing that they would become, remember they were blessed that they would become like Leah and Rachel and Tamar. All three of these women were ridiculed or shamed and whom the Lord redeemed and comforted through the birth of a son. Now, sons are not more valuable than daughters, and let's make that very clear. 
Remember at the end of Ruth, don't forget that Ruth is declared to be more valuable than seven sons. So by that math, women, I guess, are seven times more valuable, or at least Ruth is. So the point is not that sons are more valuable or that daughters are more valuable. Here's the reason why. It's because it was a son which the Lord promised to Eve. In Genesis 3.15, immediately after the whole race of Adam fell, God promises a redeemer, and that redeemer would be a son. A son to redeem all of Eve's family from sin and death and evil. A son born to redeem her. A son who would be able to stand in the place of the whole family and to do what they failed to do, and it would count for them as if they themselves had done it. Also, a son who could stand in the place of the whole family and be crushed in their place, whom God would count it as if their, that whole family had been crushed for their sins. It would count. His punishment would be able to count as if they had all been punished. This son, we now know, was also the son of God the Lord Jesus Christ. But before he came, it was fitting that it was a son whom Israel and all of her families should have been on the lookout for. Hannah is the beloved wife of Elkanah. How he ended up with two wives is not explained, but this is clearly in contradiction to God's design of marriage, which is very clear in Genesis 2. One man and one woman permanently clinging to one another until death do them part. And Hannah is in an enviable position, but she's also in an unenviable position. She is barren, and she is constantly ridiculed by her rival, Penina, who had children. And she is especially ridiculed as they go to the house of the Lord to worship and and offer sacrifices for their sins. We're also introduced to Eli, the priest, and he further humiliates this woman by assuming that her silent pleas to the Lord are nothing more than drunkenness. When Eli is corrected and prays that she will bear a child, Hannah's grief and sadness disappears. I wonder if you noticed how this child, if the child would be granted to Hannah, he would be dedicated to the Lord. Other Israelites who knew the Lord were free to pursue their dreams and plans while glorifying God and keeping his commandments and trusting his promises. They were all free to do that. But this son, born to comfort Hannah in her grief, would also be born to Israel as part of God's plan to comfort the grief of his dearly loved woman, Israel. Israel, too, was ridiculed and mocked by the nations. She, too, was ridiculed as she worshipped the Lord. The extraordinary circumstances surrounding Samuel's birth are an indicator that the Lord is moving forward in a massive step toward bringing the son promised to Eve to comfort not just one family, but the entire family of God. His beloved bride, his covenant people would be comforted by the birth of a son. 
And Samuel's birth and the extraordinary circumstances around that is a sign that God has not forgotten that promise and also that it was coming soon. That brings us to our second point. The Messiah will humiliate the proud and exalt the lowly. And I trust you'll be able to see that with me as we continue to read the prayer which Hannah prayed when giving Samuel to the Lord's service. How is the Lord going to do this? How is he going to humiliate the proud and exalt the lowly? And we learn that he's going to do this by his king, his anointed king, his Christ, his Messiah, keeping in mind there had been no king in Israel yet. Let's read together Hannah's song, Hannah's prayer. Chapter 2, 1 Samuel 2, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who, were once, those who were once full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but, he, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So now we've seen a major shift in the focus of the redemption of the people of God. Not a change, but a broadening and a a clearer understanding. Their redemption would come through God. They knew that. They also knew it would come by a man who was their relative. Eve was promised this in Genesis 3. They would see redemption from sin and the reign of evil of Satan. Now we see that God's redemption of his people is going to come through a king with a kingdom, not just any king, but one anointed by the Lord. And I wonder if you saw that in verse 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. His king, his anointed. Now in English Hebrew, his Messiah. In English Greek, it would be his Christ. That's what anointed means. They're just actual literal translations of each other. Messiah, anointed, or Christ. A king which, which the Lord would clearly and very visibly anoint over his people. 
Yet his reign and power and sovereignty would extend over all nations to the ends of the earth. And I wonder if you saw that in verse 10 as well. The Lord will judge to the ends of the earth. Did you see how the proud who are going to be crushed by him are described? Look in verse 1. They're described as enemies. Verse 3, they're described as proud and arrogant. Verse 4, they're described as mighty. Verse 5, they're described as full and abundant. Verse 9, they're described as wicked. Verse 10, they're described as adversaries. These are the people whom the Lord would humiliate through his Christ, his Messiah. Those who arrogantly and proudly set themselves against the Lord, who resist his reign, who are proud and not humble before him, who in their minds stand themselves beside God, they compare themselves to God and they're not humbled in relation to him. They're proud. God's holiness does not cause them to see their sin, and they do not see their sin and rebellion and arrogance as something to be rescued from. They don't fear God's judgment, and they will not run to him for salvation. They consider themselves rich. They exalt themselves rather than exalting the Lord. Exalt is the opposite of humiliate, to lift up and praise these exalted people will be humiliated by the Lord. And not only that, he will do that by his Christ, his anointed king. That brings us to our third point, which is this. The exalted who don't know the Lord are humiliated. As is the pattern of the Lord in Scripture, he takes a massive, long-lasting prophecy. This, this prophecy that is through the prayer of Hannah, it is a massive, long-lasting prophecy which includes all, it involves all people. And then the Lord will secure it and establish it. He'll prove this long-lasting prophecy with a, a small, short-term prophecy, proving the longer, more expansive one. He provides a case study, a short-term prophecy, which he will bring to pass in quick time. And notice how the Lord makes prophecies about two houses. We're going to read very shortly. An exalted house is going to be humiliated, and a humiliated house is going to be exalted. He makes these prophecies, and then we get to watch as he very publicly brings these prophecies to pass. And so let's read, beginning at verse 11... And we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. Now, all right, verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give me the meat for the priest to roast, for he will only accept boiled meat. He will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. 
And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you the children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it's no, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared and to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your sons. Hophni and Phinehas shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. 
And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in some of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. So we're first going to turn our attention to the ones whom the Lord decrees will be humiliated. The house of Eli. Eli's house received much honor. They'd been given a promise from the Lord, a promise which was not recorded in Scripture other than what we see here, but it was a conditional promise. It was a good and gracious promise. The Lord didn't owe them this promise. One which was more than fair, and here it was, honor me and you will be honored. We saw that in verse 30. But we can see that this family did not seek the Lord's honor, but their own. They didn't see their position as priests as a way to exalt, to lift up the Lord and and to lift up his people. But themselves, they, they changed the rules of sacrifices to get the best meat for themselves. They changed those rules. They had marital relations with women who were not their wives. And they even used the temple as a way to get more illicit sinful pleasure. Eli only steps in once it is too far. Only in relation to the woman does he now intercede or intervene. And it is a weak intervention. Not the intervention of a high priest who insists that the Lord be honored in the house of the Lord. And I wonder if you recall, in the days of the judges, looking forward to the king of Israel, that the benefit that the Lord would bring through his king would be that the king would insist that the Lord's will be done. Not suggesting or merely warning or wanting, but insisting that the Lord's will would be done. See, Eli pleads with them, but he fails to insist that they stop. It's kind of like, stop if you want to. I really want you to. But I guess if you don't want to, I'll allow it. And the Lord responds by decreeing their utter destruction, humiliation. And out reading more of God's word, the description of Eli's house is used of the whole house of Adam, the whole human race. This describes the hearts which we inherited from Adam. Hearts in rebellion against God, which set ourselves against him, elevating ourselves either beside or above him rather than below him. Now, we're told that his sons didn't respond to their dad's weak warnings because it was the Lord's will to put them to death. That doesn't mean that the Lord forced them to remain in sin. What it does mean is that the Lord did not intervene to soften their hearts and prevent them from remaining in sin. It therefore shows us that we would be all, all of us, we would be that guilty or even more so if God did not intervene with us. As bad as Hophni and Phinehas were, they would have been worse if God hadn't restrained their sin. And so it is with us. We don't get to look down on these men. We only are to see what they did 
and to see that it exists in some form within our hearts as well. Each time we break God's commandments, whether in a high-handed way like they do or with more subtle rebellions, we prove that those warnings and prophecies against those men also apply to us. That rebellion in them was not different enough from the way that it exists within us, within all of Adam's race. And by the Messiah, the Lord will crush and humiliate all of Adam's race who set themselves against him in their sin. And Eli's house is merely a graphic demonstration of the humiliation which will take place by the Lord's Messiah of all the proud and exalted who have fallen together with Adam. Which thankfully takes us to our fourth point. We get to turn our attention to the house which the Lord will exalt, the lowly. As we did with the arrogant in Hannah's song, now let's turn and see how the humble who are going to be exalted, how are they described? We see in verse 1 that they exalt not in themselves, but in the Lord and in his salvation. In verse 4, we see that they're described as feeble. Verse 5 describes them as hungry and barren. Also, verse 5 describes them as dead. In verse 7, they're described as poor. In verse 8, they're described as needy. And then in verse 9, they're described as faithful ones. Those whom the Lord will exalt through his Messiah, his anointed king, are described virtually in every opposite way as those whom the Messiah will humiliate. They are called the faithful, but lest we think that those who will be lifted by the Messiah are those who deserve that exaltation more than those who will be destroyed, Hannah corrects our thoughts. Because they're not described as more worthy. They're described as feeble and poor. They share in Adam's fall just as those who will be destroyed by Christ. They too are helpless to save themselves. They too are sinful. They too are morally bankrupt. Equally deserving of guilt and the crushing wages of that guilt which the Messiah will bring. And yet the Lord has chosen them. He's called them. And he's brought humility to their hearts. They don't rejoice in themselves and how good they are or even how humble they are. But they rejoice in the Lord and in his salvation. He is their boast. He is their confidence. And they humbly confess their sin and seek the Lord and his salvation. They don't exalt themselves, but humble themselves before the Lord, trusting in him to lift them up. They trust the salvation that the Lord will provide. And it will certainly happen. It is promised of the Lord. He provides this short-term prophecy in relation to Hannah and Samuel. And he provides its fulfillment as a graphic illustration of what will certainly happen. He will certainly fulfill his promise not only to humble the exalted, but also to exalt the humble. 
They provide a living parable, written not just on a page, but also in history. And the prophecy regarding Samuel and Hannah and their exaltation, it proves the greater prophecy of salvation of all the people of the Lord who humbly come to him and his Messiah. So Samuel is called by the Lord to replace the honored dynasty of Eli. He is lifted from nothing to leading all the people, just as the leaders of God's people are brought to nothing. Samuel's described as knowing the Lord and serving him in in his presence. Hannah's life serves as a parable of Israel's, going from being barren to full, from ridiculed to being honored. This mother and son who delight in the Lord and humble themselves before him, they recognize their poverty and guilt, and they trust the Lord to redeem them. They are exalted by the hand of the Lord. But I want to say this. This is no promise to you in this life. That you will be exalted and wealthy and have a wonderful large family. This is no promise to barren women that they will have children. No. It is a promise that the woman of God, the bride of Christ, his people, Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, Though she is ridiculed and suffers and and though she humbles herself, exalting in the Lord, she will in the end be exalted by the Lord her God. And so this promise does belong to you ultimately. Be willing to suffer grief for the sake of the Lord in this life. Because if you humbly come to him in faith in his Messiah, Jesus, you will certainly be exalted with him when he returns. Though you may be ridiculed, though the church may be ridiculed and oppressed, he will exalt her. Because the first time that he came, because he loved that bride, he, Christ, willingly humbled himself to the point of being crushed and humiliated for our sin. He certainly did that. And so he will certainly glorify and exalt his bride when he returns. This brings us to our last point, and that's this. The Messiah anointing word established by the Lord. The Messiah anointing word established by the Lord. So Hannah's song prophesies of the Lord crushing his arrogant enemies and lifting up humble people from the dust, and it also prophesies that it would be his king, his anointed, his Christ, his Messiah, who would do this. Now the question is, how would Israel know who was that anointed king? Knowing who he is is very critical to survival, right? If Israel knows, run to my Messiah, run to my anointed, through him Israel will be exalted, and everyone else will be crushed. It's very important that they knew who he was. Resisting him won't make you guilty. It doesn't make you damned, but it cements that, which you already deserved. And humbling yourself under him brings the promise of undeserved salvation to you. So knowing who the Lord's anointed is, is the most, certainly it's the most important question you could ask and have answered. 
It pleases the Lord to make sure that when he does bring his king, it will be unmistakable that he is indeed the one. That's important because the Messiah himself will not be easily identifiable. You wouldn't be able to tell just by looking at the Messiah, the Lord's anointed king. He wouldn't be the one you'd choose. So it would have to be his word that tells you clearly who he is. Samuel is the one whom the Lord chooses to be the one who anoints the anointed, who anoints the Christ, who anoints the Messiah, who anoints the king. But the Lord Lord first has to publicly establish Samuel as the king anointer so that when the Messiah, the king, the Lord's anointed, comes, everyone would know for certain in Israel who he is. Was. And so let's look at how the Lord establishes the word which anoints his anointed. Verse, or chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not gone out yet, had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and laid down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And the Lord arose and went to Samuel and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity he knew because his, servant, his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of, God, of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. 
For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The Lord establishes Samuel by establishing his word as the word which, which anoints and identifies the Messiah. He gives Samuel the prophecy which overlaps that other prophecy of the prophet that condemned Eli's house. And Eli knew that Samuel was the prophet of the Lord. He knew it for certain. And so did all of Israel. I wonder if you caught that. From Dan to Beersheba. They all knew where to look for the word of God. They were not each to get their own words from the Lord. No, that was never God's pattern. He provided prophets whom he would give his word to all his people. One people under one word. It was never up for debate who those prophets were. They're always known to Israel who is the prophet, who are the prophets of the Lord. There may have been a couple at a time, but they were all known to God's people as the prophets of the Lord. No private prophets, no private prophecies. It was God's pattern that his people looked not to personal words from the Lord, but to the word which was publicly established. These men were established by short-term prophecies which were fulfilled giving confidence in their long-term universal prophecies. They were also established in part by the command that if any of their words fell to the ground, if they said anything that didn't come true, you were to kill them immediately. The word of the Lord was established publicly so that his people will know who his anointed would be so they could flee to him So, David, the first royal kinsman redeemer of Israel, who would insist that God's will would be done, and who would crush the exalted and exalt the humbled, and who would bring comfort to the Lord's beloved, ridiculed bride. That was the first royal kinsman redeemer. And it was very clear to all of Israel that it was him, because the Lord first established the word of Samuel as the Messiah anointing word. And it would be David's house hundreds of years later, which Jesus Christ would come from. Jesus, the final and greatest royal kinsman redeemer of God's people. The full and final redemption will have to come through David's descendant, and he too, Jesus, would also be identified not just by one prophet, but by every single prophet of the Lord's word. From Genesis to Malachi to Matthew and then John's revelation, his word publicly establishes true, which publicly identifies that Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Adam, the son of Eve, who is also the son of God, was that Messiah who would crush the exalted and exalt the humble. A thousand years later, we can hear together the words which came from the mouth of another mom, Mary, descendant of David, upon hearing that it would be her son who would be the Messiah to end all messiahs, the anointed king of God who would crush the proud and glorify the humble who run to him for salvation. Hear how similar this is to Hannah's prayer. Luke chapter 1, 46. 
And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Brothers and sisters, if you have recognized your poverty, your spiritual death, and your guilt, and if you've run to Jesus, the Christ of God, you can know for certain that you will one day be exalted with him. That's a gift that God works, this humble faith in you, where you transfer your confidence off of yourself, and you transfer that, the Lord transfers your confidence into the Lord's Messiah. And so when sin tempts you to live in rebellion against Christ, run from that temptation. Don't embrace the lie that living a life which exalts yourself and sin is a better life. It's a false joy, it's a false confidence, and it's a false glory, and it will end in the greatest humiliation at the hands of Jesus, the King, the Messiah. This passage pleads with us and, sort of, and it actually insists that we examine ourselves to be humble. I fear that there are some of us, like Eli's sons, who are engaging in high-handed sin against the Lord without fear of judgment. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder that the redemption of the Lord brings not only forgiveness, but it also brings a broken spirit which humbly confesses sin and continually runs from sin to Christ for grace and mercy. Martin Luther famously said that the Christian life was one of continual repentance. Friends, if you're joining us in your confidence, if your confidence is in your obedience or in your loyalty to God or maybe even your loyalty to Jesus, you can know for certain that you will be crushed by him, not exalted. Think of how arrogant it is. It's so arrogant to trust that your humility is good enough to secure your salvation. It's not. Perhaps maybe your confidence is that God is too good to crush sinners. The Lord is perfectly good, but his word destroys any confidence that he doesn't crush sinners. In fact, he will do so by the reign of King Jesus. So where should your confidence be? It can't be in your faith. I'm, I, I have confidence in my faith. I have confidence in my righteousness. I have confidence in my humility. All of those things are exalting yourself in what you have done. Where should it be? Your confidence must only be in Christ's obedience on your behalf. And Christ's damnation on the cross 
on your behalf and Christ's resurrection from the dead on your behalf. Those who are exalted by him trust that when Christ was crushed by God on the cross, he was receiving what we deserve. He who was glorious, he laid aside his glory to be crushed and humiliated for our sins so that we would be able to be exalted, not on the basis of our own glory or faith or humiliation or humbleness or loyalty or faithfulness, but we would be exalted on the base of his glory, faithfulness, humility, righteousness. I'm going to close with the words of 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful. As we read your word, it identifies not just Hophni and Phinehas, not just Pharaoh, not just Hitler, not just Nebuchadnezzar. It identifies us as those who have exalted themselves against you. And we are grateful that you have not left us in a position where we will be humiliated by your Christ. But you loved us so much that you sent your Christ to be humiliated in our place and to be crushed in our place. And he raised him from the dead, proving, permanently establishing a testimony that he was the Messiah. So that we would not be crushed as we deserve, we would not be humiliated as we deserve but receive the glory that only Christ deserves. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a humble faith. And Lord, that we would run from sin to you, to Christ and the salvation he provides, Lord. We long for glory and to be exalted, and you've put that in us, and that's a good thing, Lord, but I pray that we would not seek it in ourselves, but that we would seek it in Christ and Christ alone. And I pray that you would do these things in Christ's name. Amen.